Welcome to the Report Card with Nat Malkus, the education policy podcast from the American Enterprise Institute. On this episode, I invited Larry Berger onto the podcast to discuss the science of reading, education technology, curriculum and high-quality instructional materials, for-profit companies in education, and more. Larry Berger is the CEO and co-founder of Amplify, an education company that creates K-12 assessments, intervention programs, and core curricula. In 2022, Amplify's materials were used in over 4,000 U.S. school districts and by over 15 million students worldwide. Larry Berger, welcome to the report card. Great to be here. So, Larry, I know to some degree, but our listeners may not be that familiar with Amplify. So let's start with the simple one. What is Amplify? Amplify is an education company that serves K-12, and we have been at it for about 23 years. We have products that do assessment, not end-of-year testing, but tools that teachers use to understand how kids are developing in reading and math. We have high-quality instructional materials. So those are in two categories, core curriculum, like the textbooks you grew up with, but now those are partly digital and partly still textbooks, uh, and they they have a lot of interactive qualities to them. And then the third category is this thing we call supplemental curriculum. These are personalized learning systems that kids use on their own, uh, generally on computer. And Amplify does each of those things in reading, math, and science. So would you call Amplify a tech company or not exactly? You know, we'd like to just lead with education. We're an education company, but we are tech forward. And when we are designing a product, we are always asking ourselves, which part of this experience would be better for teachers and kids if it were in software? And which part of it is better in print and hands-on materials? And in all cases, when we use software, it's always software towards the end of making something happen in a real classroom. It's not getting the curriculum to disappear into the screen. Gotcha. So I think at Amplify, you would say your business is high quality instructional materials, right? Yes. So, yes. you know, in really broad strokes, because we'll get into specifics, what makes high quality instructional materials? Sure. So there is a sense... Uh, that for too long, the publishing industry has been simply complying with a set of requirements. So a state will say, we want these things, and they'll say, great, we've got one of each of them. And insufficiently driven by the research about what actually works for kids' development, for learning, for successful experiences in classrooms. And that body of research has gotten to uh, a level of authoritativeness that you can now ask the question, is this curriculum high quality in the way it reflects the research about what works? And Amplify has been in our development process embodying that idea, starting with definitions of quality, what actually works, then building product that uh, first and foremost lives up to those expectations about what the current state of the art on quality is. And then also making sure that if there are specific requirements in a given state or district, that we have ways of, of addressing those. But I, I think it's a movement about saying, we now know stuff about how to teach reading and math that is no longer art, it's science. And to what extent does your curriculum reflect what we know? 
So I want to definitely get to the science part in a bit and pull that out. But let me ask a little bit about being a provider and navigating when your customers may want things that may not be the highest quality instructional materials. I mean, can you tell me how that's been to navigate? How do you make sure that what you deliver may be a higher quality product than the market actually demands? It's a great question. We tend to start from a position of deference to what local educators are saying they want, that a presumption that that we know better because we read the research or we hired the experts or whatever uh, is a dangerous assumption because so often get on the ground with real educators in, in a particular community and their reasons for wanting what they want are good and we learn from it and they teach us a lot. That said, we do have an education mission and one part of what we spend a lot of time on, I would say, in the world of education, this is what marketing is, is making the case for certain ideas in reading, in math, in science. And when we say make the case, sharing the results of the research, sharing what's happening in classrooms that are living that, that approach, and hoping to change the demand side a bit, to get to the point where what educators are asking for is what is embodied in this idea of high quality and is what Amplify is, is endeavoring to provide them. So it's always a, a two-way street. Sometimes the local input to what we are doing gets us to change our position about what we're doing or make our product more flexible to address a local need. And sometimes it's the other way. We bring an idea to a community that they weren't thinking they were looking for and they start to change what it is they're asking for. Or best of all, they agree to do an experiment. We didn't think we were looking for that. Can we try it for six weeks? And we tend to find once we're in that mode where we're learning from each other, because when they try it, we learn what's working about our product in their community and they learn why we did it that way. And it sometimes changes what they're looking for. And I'm assuming this is a good entree for the formative assessment work. So part of what Amplify provides is formative assessments that teachers can use to assess students quickly, accurately, efficiently. And so when you say, hey, let's try it and evaluate it, I'm assuming it's based on Amplify's formative assessment products? Not necessarily. I think when, when we go into a district that wants to pilot something, we are very often asking them what are the metrics that matter to you right now? So sometimes it's proficiency in mathematics, but sometimes it's our kids are completely checked out from middle school math, and we just would love to see some life in those classrooms. What would it look like if kids were curious and energetic and groaning when math class ends rather than when it begins? And we are fond of showing these videos of kids groaning when the teacher's you know, takes them away from one of these math, ta math tasks. And every teacher committee is like, I, I don't know where you found those kids, but my kids aren't like that. And, uh, and then we, we show them that it's not that hard to run that kind of a classroom, but it is different. And they, they would have to be wanting to walk along the path to that different approach. So sometimes that is, how are they doing on a particular formative assessment? But just as often it is, what they construe as their problem, the one that they're trying to solve. And we agree to be uh, ad hoc about the measures of, can we make a difference on the problem that they have locally? All right. So real simple question. Amplify is a for-profit company, right? Yes. 
Okay, so the reason I bring that up is because your last answer runs counter to sort of the stereotypes of for-profit companies in education that you'll hear a lot in like the education blogosphere or whatever. I mean, a lot of times if you say for-profit company, it's like saying a four-letter word, but you're talking about, hey, we're going to try and deliver engagement to your students so that they want to learn. Not exactly the kind of commodification of education that often gets hung on for-profits. How do you think about being a for-profit company in the education space especially vis-a-vis those stereotypes. And when do you get nervous when you see for-profits maybe putting profit ahead of more important goals? These are great questions. I often start by pointing out that education is a complex collaboration between the public sector, between the philanthropic sector, nonprofit actors, and for-profit actors. And I think we've made some good decisions about where the for profits are are put into uh, service and where public and uh, philanthropic sector work needs to be done as a system. And ours, our system here in the United States is more heterogeneous about how all those different actors work together. It's worth pointing out that in lots of mission-critical, complex product development, there are rarely nonprofit actors. So there aren't any nonprofit airline manufacturers. It requires you to enlist an amount of capital and invest towards long-term returns and accumulate expertise in so many different fields that it has been helpful to have both the competition in the market, someone buying planes has a few different competitors to, to buy from, but also just the accumulation of expertise and capital required to do something remarkable. And also just things we rely on every day. There aren't any nonprofit light bulb manufacturers because the competitive market has gotten light bulbs to be cheap enough and reliable enough that we don't need to have an alternate market of do-good or light, light bulb makers. We, we trust that we're getting pretty good ones at close to the optimal value from the market as it's currently construed. And so I think of instructional materials as an example of a place where doing it right requires expertise across lots of disciplines and an accumulation of capital to invest in making the right product and a willingness to keep investing in it over time that for-profit models are actually quite well set up to do. Public sector, Congress could decide not to appropriate the money to keep investing in that R&D. Philanthropy could the wind could blow another direction and they have a different interest. In my world, we we make a living. Our revenue comes in from the products we sell and we reinvest that revenue into building better and better uh, versions of that product. So I think there's a right place for that model and, and also just competition. For-profits are set up to know they have to compete to win what is, after all, taxpayer money that is being spent on, on what we do. And nonprofits are often less willing to do that, to sort of do head-to-head competition to try to prove that they're the best. They're like, hey, if you want us, you can use us, but otherwise we'll move on to the next district that wants us. There are some that, that do compete, and education actually has a bunch of those. But I think market forces have been really good at creating the possibility of steadily improving education products. You also asked, where can this go wrong? And where is it a problem to see for-profit models? I do think that there is 
a phenomenon that has happened and hasn't been sufficiently reported in the general press, which is that in the last five to seven years, private equity has moved very heavily into education. For a long time, they weren't interested in it, but they recently have decided this could be a good business to get into. And in doing so, if you look at the education industry, the preponderance of companies, I would say, are now owned by private equity firms. And the challenge with that is that private equity firms often have a three to five year horizon for achieving a return. And educational improvement, what it takes to do real R&D, to build a great product, to learn how to service it and support it and train teachers, I think is more of a five to 10 year uh, time frame. And so there's a disconnect right now between the business models of the investors and the needs of great education products. Amplify has tried to, to, be, uh, to keep its investor base long-term, patient investors who want to come along for the ride of, let's really learn how to do this. And if it takes five years, seven years, 10 years, 15 years, uh, then that might actually be good because we're willing to be that patient when the rest of the market might not be. But I do worry that the players in educational technology are thinking shorter term now than is best for the health of our sector. So let me repeat back what I've heard, because this is pretty interesting and novel, at least to my ears, and that is private equity's timeframe for investments is sort of along the model of, hey, let's pump up the value in the short term. We might sell it. Then we get a return in three to five years. Everybody's happy, except maybe those who are being served, where if education needs a longer term investment, then that private equity is a threat to the quality of the products. You've said it very well. And I think it, it applies both to the horizon of R&D, how long a process of figuring out how to get this right are they willing to invest in. But I would also say it applies to the people that are deployed to support schools. We've learned over the years that if you want to bring out a new curriculum, if you want to help a district go through some changes in how it teaches science to introduce a new a new concept to teachers, that is a lot of on-the-ground work in school districts with people who stand shoulder to shoulder with teachers, helping them be successful until they're ready to do it on their own. Very often, private equity investors pride themselves on saying, wow, this part of your business has a lot of people traveling all over the country. Shouldn't we cut that? Shouldn't we not do that anymore? Shouldn't we just post some videos about how to do this and hope that that does the trick? And so I have watched a bunch of companies in education cut back on that. Suddenly they look profitable to an investor, but the school districts start feeling like this isn't working for us anymore. And in the long run, they mo may move on to, to work with a partner who is willing to put people on the ground to help them be successful. And so I think the companies that have a long-term view, and, and to be fair, like there are some private equity firms that have enabled companies to have a long-term view. Uh, they really invest in the people side of making education products successful, but that's not without expense. Yeah, the shoe leather, it's expensive, right? Yep, exactly. So let me ask you about a, 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 some more specifics. At Amplify, you are invested in curriculum and have been invested in the science of reading for some time. Now, that yes. is sort of novelly important all of a sudden. It's hit the news cycle, right? You can read about the reading wars or the science of reading in the New York Times. 
What do you make about the recent developments in the science of reading? And what do you think most people get wrong about the science of reading? Yeah, wow. So there's a lot there. I mean, I, I think the science that drives the science of reading has been accumulating steadily, but was pretty clear 10 years ago, maybe 15 years ago. And so the real question is like, why did it take so long for that science to get a foothold in, in K-12? And there have been some wonderful, you know, we have our own Science of Reading podcast and, and Emily Hanford's famous uh, Soul of the Story podcast gets a lot of this story told. But in some sense, there are two surprises. One, why did it take so long? And how did it finally happen that the thing we would we should be seeing in education all the time, looking at the research, deciding what's best, being willing to change, being willing to drop assumptions that you were taught in ed school when the, the science shows you something else, how did that finally happen quickly in America? And some of it is that the media started paying attention, some of its parents started complaining, and some of it is just the way that a research consensus grinds on, building more and more evidence that just makes it harder and harder to defend the other position. And I would say our own journey on this, you know, we came to it kind of honestly. At first, we started out saying, we just want to support what reading teachers are doing. So some of them were doing science of reading type stuff, and we built the products for them. Some of them were doing the more balanced literacy side of things, and we built products for them. And then because a lot of our products are about capturing data and looking at the patterns of what's working, we just kept seeing that too many kids were slipping through the cracks on the balanced literacy side and that the schools that took seriously the requirements of science of reading were growing faster, their data was making more sense when they invested more time and more resources into getting a result for kids, they got it as opposed to just throwing good money after, after a bad solution. And so we, we really shifted and went all in about a decade ago on the science of reading side of things. Before it was cool, but not, not because we saw around the corner, but just because we were reading the research and we were looking at our own data. You, you ended by asking, what should we be worried about in science of reading? And all, all I would say is there's always the risk that a movement that's based on empiricism and clearly looking at the evidence, when it becomes ascendant, becomes dogmatic and doctrinaire in its own way. There's one right way to do the science of reading as opposed to the science of reading is a process. It's, it's what do we know best based on real evidence in real classrooms today and how is that evolving over time? So I think at one level, it's just keeping the same scientific method open-minded, let's follow the evidence and not assuming that now we know best and we just have to execute. And then the other thing is, I think science of reading often gets narrowly reduced to the phonics versus whole language set of assumptions about how early reading development takes place. And the science of reading is much broader. It might more accurately be called the sciences of reading because there are things. How does comprehension happen? How do kids grok syntax? How do they become fluent writers and comfortable with uh, ideas being articulated in text. Like all those things are also part of the science, but the shorthand for science of reading has tended to narrow in on phonics, phonemic awareness, the basic skills, and some of the best arguments in science have been made for things like the importance of coherently building knowledge on the part of kids as a, as a fundamental pillar of how they become great readers. 
some people remember to, to accentuate that when talking about science of reading. Sometimes it kind of slips away and it just becomes the old phonics debate. Yeah. Many of the prophets of the science of reading say, hey, this is first base. Content is also important. But uh, yeah. that race to first base often gets most of the heat, at least. Exactly. Um, at Amplify, you've also been bolstering math programming recently. About a year ago, you acquired Desmos, which is an online sort of calculator tool designed to help. But we've been talking about the science of reading. You also do lots of work in math. Is there a science of math at play that is also not getting the airing and attention that it might deserve? I think in math, it is particularly important to be talking about sciences of math. I think there's been a, a kind of simplistic movement to say, well, there are some basic skills that matter in reading. Science of reading looked at narrowly is about those basic skills. Let's map that over and say there are basic skills, number, operation that are important in math. And uh, within that, we mean the just procedural fluency. Kids can work with numbers and get right answers. And none of the real research in math is satisfied that it stops there. And so the real question is, how do you simultaneously develop that kind of procedural fluency, maybe analogous to the phonics over on the math side, and how do you get kids comfortable with complex mathematical tasks, with applying what they know, using different configurations of tools to solve a new problem, which is the real work of being someone who can work in a STEM field. And then also there's a science of how do you keep a whole classroom of kids motivated and engaged and seeing math as a language with which they can talk to each other and uh, interpret the world. Those are the things that go into making a math program that is grounded on the in the science of what works. So we are fond of just making sure that we complicate that debate by talking about the sciences of math, which isn't to say that the people who are advocating for procedural fluency are wrong. It's just that even they, when you ask the follow-up question, admit that's not all there is to it. There's a bunch we need to build on top of that. And in math, there really is a great body of research on each of those things. It's never enough research. Education has been chronically underfunded as a basic research field. But there is great work on how to bring conceptual understanding to life in math class. And there's great work on how to bring procedural fluency to life in a math class. And often there's been a shallow debate about doing one or the other when almost every real educator is like, of course I do both. Sure. So let me ask you this. You're not in classrooms every day, but your products are, and you're familiar with your curriculum and your competition. Yeah. So this could be a tough question, but the quality of reading curriculum versus the quality of math curriculum, just generally, mm. which set would you say is higher quality and which one is in more dire need of work? Okay, I think I would say that there are still more reading curricula that are off the right path, that are still not coming around to what it takes to do, take science of reading and coherent building of knowledge to take those ideas seriously as what you need to be doing in early reading classrooms. And so in that sense, I think the crisis over on the reading side is acute. It is being on the plane when the warning light goes on, that there's not enough fuel to get to the destination. So I would say while people are coming over to 
thinking about the current high quality understanding of reading, there's still enough stuff over there that I want to ring the alarm bell about that. In math, I think there is a baseline of understanding of what the math curriculum is and what kinds of activities over the decades and centuries enable kids to, to become reasonably fluent and reasonably able to apply. But the crisis over on the math side is so many kids don't like math. So many teachers are afraid that math class is going to be the boring part of the day if they're an elementary teacher and they teach reading and math and science and history. Uh, so many middle school and high school math teachers are like, the, the kids are checked out. They are not interested in math. And so the crisis there is not that there isn't some quality in each curriculum, but something is going wrong in math classrooms. That is, it's a rarity when a great teacher brings everything to life rather than a common routine thing that is happening in school districts. So I think over on the math side, there's a widespread crisis of engagement, just kids, kids loving math, feeling that math unlocks their brilliance. That's a rare idea in schools. So Larry, I'm going to ask the put up or shut up question here. You said earlier that you had talked with districts and they said, we want more engagement and Amplify had ways to increase that engagement. And you're talking now about how, man, a lot of math classrooms are disengaged or perhaps disengaging. So what's the secret sauce, man? How do you get engagement where currently there isn't? I would say there are three ingredients in the secret sauce. One of them is designing tasks to put in front of kids that have this characteristic that uh, the, the math educators call low floors and high ceilings, meaning everyone can get into this problem and start doing some work on it. You know, if you've ever done Wordle, everyone can do Wordle. You just have to type a word and no one fails to start solving a Wordle puzzle. Becoming great at it, so you get it in two or three guesses, super hard and arguably impossible to do every time, but people do improve a lot within it. So that would suggest Wordle has a very low floor and room for a quite high ceiling. In math, we very often create a, uh, a set of problems for kids that either they can't do any of them, they're, they're lost, this whole worksheet doesn't make any sense to them, or this is way too easy, I learned this last year. And what we try to do is make sure there's a task that is complex enough that all the kids can get into it, and there's room to do very advanced math within that problem if you are willing to go there. And the key idea there is it's very different than the personalized learning idea. Each kid at their own level, one of us is doing calculus, one of us is doing numbers uh, and counting. In this case, it would be we're all doing numbers and counting. It turns out there are professional mathematicians who are still making breakthroughs in numbers and counting, um, and you could go all the way to that high ceiling. But we're together in this shared activity. We are trying to solve this task. There is room to do more advanced mathematics. So that's the first one, tasks with low floors and high ceilings. The second one is what we would call enriched feedback, that when I try out ideas, I get some feedback on whether my idea is interesting mathematically. Not so much that it's right or it's wrong, but if I think this is the kind of bridge that's going to get across the river, well, what happens? We have a, a probably my, the most important part of our math curriculum is a try it button that you see in lots of, I, I have a mathematical idea about how to solve this. Click try it. Uh-oh, that bridge doesn't get to the other side of the river. What were the characteristics that were missing to, to get it there? So it's this enriched feedback that isn't right, wrong, try again, 
uh, but it's here's what the math you volunteered produces. And the task we're trying to do is looking for something else. I still validate your idea. I can show you what it means, but there's more, there's more to do here. Um, and then the third one is just empowering teachers in, in a way that we call extending their reach, giving them a chance to see inside what all the different kids in their class are doing, where they are in solving this problem and helping them provide the little bit of support that enables a group of kids, an individual kid, to thrive in that lesson, to figure things out for themselves, and at the right moment to synthesize back to the class what it is that they've learned and, and consolidate it uh, and give them a chance to practice. So, you know, the one thing that it's not is turning it into a game, making it play, saying like, this is a fun math competition. Unless it's the task itself that kids get excited about, you're probably making what we call chocolate covered broccoli. The math itself isn't so so great, but we're going to code it in gamification. And, and we, we are allergic to that. Our argument is the math itself could be great if we just put it in front of kids in ways that got them excited. One way we keep our podcast engaging is through a session called Grade It. Are you game? I'm game. All right, here we go. The potential of AI in education. I'm going to score this one an incomplete, meaning we are so early in that work that I don't think it's gradable. Uh, but if you give it five years, so we, your question was the potential, I'm going to give it a B. It's not the solution to everything, but it is going to make a lot of stuff, I think, mostly in the back office of teaching, the support of teachers, the support of grading, the communication to parents, the analytics on what's happening in classrooms, all that stuff is going to be great. I don't think we are going to have great AI teachers uh, in my lifetime. That's interesting because it goes back to the shoe leather component. But wouldn't AI be great if it enabled shoe leather instead of replaced it? All right. I'll stop my own grading here. Teaching students Shakespeare. A. I am a big believer on it. I've done a bunch of it. And, uh, you know, we, we try to do it early and often in our curriculum. Uh, for a bunch of reasons, not just that Shakespeare is one of those things you need to know, but if you're looking for the origins of where does where does our modern idea about wordplay, many of our modern ideas about syntax, they are traceable back to Shakespeare. The Common Core State Standards, an oldie but a goodie. I'm going to give a B on the substance, and uh, you know, at this point, uh, a D on the politics. They were tough. Ed reform in the 2000s. That's the aughts in the early 2010s. A well-intentioned first try. We educators like to grade effort. Uh, I'm going to say a, a B. We learned a lot. We disaggregated student performance we, we thought about the ways that measurement and improvement could work together, but it was a first draft and a lot of unintended consequences that it would be great if we could stay the course and try to, to execute on the vision of leaving no child left behind. But I worry we are on to other preoccupations, and I'm not sure there's one that is more noble than the idea that all kids can achieve and the education system should support that. 
Okay, the average school, this is the average school here, the way they use ed tech in 2023. I'm going to go to A minus, which is to say, like, schools everywhere transformed from technology skeptical, do I really have to use this tech to, because of the pandemic, teachers are now expert users. So I think we are now at a really interesting point where the consumers, the demand is actually smart. It knows what it wants. And our field is not yet delivering at scale on the vision that teachers have, which is they want to use software. They just want each piece of software they use to talk to the other pieces and to be efficient about their classroom life. And right now they waste a lot of time on usernames, passwords, and, and trying to find data that's stored all over the internet. Fair enough. Last one. Cell phones in schools. I'm not a, I'm not a fan. I, I think that the most precious ingredient of school is kids' attention. And I actually am on the board of an, an organization called the Institute for Sustained Attention that is trying to figure out what has happened. How did we allow this kind of fracking of human attention uh, and how are we subjecting it on the on the next generation of kids? So I like the, the solutions where we put the cell phone in a bag uh, while we're doing teaching and learning and maybe occasionally take it out for some sort of group process activity that can use a phone effectively. But let's make that a one in a hundred field trip, not the norm. Fair enough. Let's talk a little bit more. You had talked in the in the reading discussion, the science of reading, about sort of content knowledge. Are you familiar with some of these studies, or at least the apostles of the core knowledge school? And yep. the argument here is, look, it's not process. A lot of this is a failure for schools to equip students with the core knowledge of institutions and history and enough of the world that they can hang those skills on. Um, just give me your take on this. You're a guy who heads Amplify, which is a curriculum provider. This should, I think, strike a chord with you. How does it strike you? Absolutely. Well, I mean, I will say that, you know, we are a publisher of a curriculum called Core Knowledge Language Arts, which actually was a collaboration with the Core Knowledge Foundation, you know, who have been the early prophets of this, this idea. Um, and only, I would say, in the last decade or so has a conviction that they had emerged as a consensus of the research, maybe a little more than a decade. But like some of the other breakthroughs in science of reading, it is somewhat recent that people are coming around to, oh, elementary school has to deliver enough background knowledge to kids that they can read the sort of text that middle school and, and high school is all about. Just to back this up for readers, the core knowledge idea is exemplified in this study where they quizzed kids on how well they could read a section and the kids who and the topic was about baseball and the kids who knew the basic rules of baseball could comprehend what they read. And the kids who did not know the basic rules of baseball, they didn't do well on the reading task. We assume that it wasn't reading. It was the fact that they understood the background about baseball that enabled them to knit this together. Is this a fair summarization of the core knowledge argument? Absolutely. And, and to make the baseball uh, example really concrete, there are sentences that are not hard to read. The short stop 
hit a slow roller to third, and uh, that retired the side. Like each one of those words is really simple word, but if you don't know baseball, none of that makes any sense. So is comprehension dependent on the syntax? Or do you need to know that retiring the side is the end of an inning or the end of half an inning um, in baseball? And kids who know that, who've, who've listened to a few baseball games, that sentence will make perfect sense to them. The greatest professor of literature who's never seen a baseball game will have no idea what that sentence means. Do we need to teach that greatest professor of literature what a main idea is? No, but that's what we do to kids in the old way of doing it is they're doing workshops on main idea questions, sequencing questions, all these ingredients of how do you comprehend text. But the main idea of how you comprehend text is you have enough background knowledge so that the words being used, the context being created, the situation model of each sentence uh, makes sense to you. And the world is quickly waking up to the fact that we don't have an alternative to doing that. Worth pointing out that 100 years ago, that's kind of what schools thought they were supposed to do, is give people the knowledge that grown-up adults have. And then we got excited about developing kids' minds, and we forgot the, but still give them the knowledge. So I still love the progressive, let's develop kids' minds, but let's give them a foundation of background knowledge with which to reason for themselves, with which to build arguments and evidence, and with which to keep growing their vocabulary and, and their ability to read the next level and the next level. So, Larry, let me ask you, you mentioned this Institute for Sustained Attention, which I'd love for you to drop a little bit about that. But look, I want to share my main concern on the ed tech front. My main yeah. con and part of this is Amplify actually for a while there had like a tablet, right, like a piece of hardware. And that didn't work out fine. But the interesting thing about that is if you can control the hardware, then you can control what students are doing. You know, you can put parameters what I really worry about where we are right now, post-pandemic, is tons of schools have gone from having some devices to one-to-one -one status. They have a device for every kid, and they are in the habit of using those devices. And those devices, unfortunately, are hooked up to the internet, which is just a distraction machine. Mm -hmm. And I worry that especially for younger kids, they don't have the capacity to self-control. I worry that we are losing the leash that is actually pretty useful. And that because of that, a lot of these machines and these laptops and, and screens are overwhelming students. And, you know, this Institute for Sustained Attention, sign me up, bro. But I really just worry that there are things we can do in ed tech because of ed tech that can be beneficial on the margin, but on the whole, the threat is enormous. And that this has been amplified by the pandemic because we have now more devices and we have more people used to running school through those devices. So, you know, am I chicken little here saying the sky is falling? Or do you think that this is a real challenge for both ed tech companies and for schools right now? Yes, you're not chicken little. This is the challenge for each gain in productivity that can happen from a software tool. We are likely to have that canceled out by another opportunity for a distraction, a kind of another addiction to TikTok that ends up consuming that kid's free time, even if some good things were happening in, in class. And so 
we continue to be big fans of the idea that elementary education needs to be a mix of print, hands-on, physical materials in the classroom, and some software that supports it, but not necessarily software forward, kids on screens all the time. In fact, we, we try to avoid that in any kind of prevalence in, in K2. But man, are there some things you can do at K2 with software that get kids excited and get them debating and talking and having a great experience in the class because something in the software set up that moment. Same goes, you know, e-reading. There's a bunch of things we can do to help kids make their way through complex texts Sometimes just that one vocabulary word that you know they're unlikely to get. And if you can give them a, a clickable way to get a simple word that can replace the one that they wouldn't have known, it lets them read a text that otherwise might have been out of reach. All that stuff is great. And we need physical books where there's nothing to click on or swipe. And you can test your ability to stay on track with that linear flow of words and how long you can sustain your attention to it. And if we aren't realizing that that is one of the fundamental things that all people who learn how to learn get really good at, uh, we are just missing a chance. And I, I think there is a way to think of the technologies in school as technologies that support attention, that help drive kids towards the task they need to pay attention to, the text they need to wonder about, the work that they're going to do as a group to solve a problem. And then there are the technologies of distraction. And, and I think it might be a losing battle to say, let's just keep all the tech out of the school and try to teach kids to pay attention because that's not the world they're going to live in as workers or as adult citizens. The important thing is to show them you can do serious work on these tools. You can learn deep things. You can have important exchanges with your peers and with a knowledge tradition that is actually more engaging than the latest TikTok stunt. And so we think the game is to prove what's possible. And in some of the work that the Institute for Sustained Attention does, we actually start with exercises that begin on kids' phones. And then we move that exercise off the phone and we get kids to be self-aware about what is their mind like on the, the drug of TikTok and what is their mind like when they are available to think, to communicate, to to pay attention. And we've had some crazy experiences of middle school kids saying, take this phone out of my life. It's it's ruining my ability to think uh, in a way that, that runs quite counter to the assumption that we have about just how much middle school kids need a phone to be part of the social community that they're in. So let me ask you about the limiting principle that needs to be present here in schools when it comes to education. So typically we have some sort of principle that, you know, binds us to a pattern of action, right? You know, like there's a continuity of math and that principle sort of drives the way we do instruction. With ed tech, let's say at some point we are getting negative marginal returns from additional uses of ed tech, but there's a lot of reasons, especially for folks in the ed tech space to push that, uh, well, you can do this with ed tech and so forth. And I don't think that we're going to have any success zeroing this out. What I'm looking for is a sort of coherent limiting principle or some limiting function that would make sense that can sort of guide those actions. Do you think that that is something that schools have managed to internalize? It's already there. Or do you think that it hasn't been established and needs to be? It's a great 
idea. I don't think it is there. I think it is quite present in almost all teachers blink reactions to what they see happening in their classroom. So they know the moment where kids' attention disappears into a screen. Maybe a screen where they're on task doing the math worksheet, but it's still, it's gone. It's not there with their classmates. And certainly they also know that as soon as they turn their back, there's a pretty high risk. It is somewhere else in, indeed, not even of education relevance. And when the class is humming and, you know, I there's a way that a classroom sounds when the technology is we like to say, on the corner of the desk, meaning it's there, it's helping set up some activity. But what's really happening is the noise of kids solving problems together, the, the rumble of a, uh, of a debate unfolding. And technology can be a great aid in setting up the conditions for that to happen. It can also suck the life out of the room. And, and teachers aren't confused about when one is happening and when the other is happening. But it's not always easy to tell while someone's demoing a product for you on in a sales presentation. And, and so we are always a fan of urging districts, if they're trying to make a choice about a technology, to not just look at the brochures and hear the presentations, but to try it. And it's one of our proudest statistics that, that when schools pilot, actually try out the choices in, in the curriculum, we win something like 90% of the time. But if they don't, we win something more like 30 or 35% of the time. And so it seems to us, not just for our own business interests, but that teachers are seeing something different when they try things versus when someone in the central office is convinced by a pitch that they heard. And to me, a lot of what that gets at is the difference between, I saw really cool things happening inside the screen when they demoed this to me versus interesting things happened in my classroom as a result of this technology. And teachers get that it's is something interesting going to happen in my classroom. Sometimes administrative buyers are looking at the stuff in the screen and not understanding that if, if kids spend their time there, they may not be having the intellectual community that school is there for. Thanks for listening to The Report Card with Nat Malkus. And special thanks to our guest, Larry Berger. Remember, you can subscribe to The Report Card on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you download podcasts. And while you're there, take a minute to leave us a review. It helps other people find the show. You can send us comments, questions, or topic suggestions to ed.podcast at aei.org. That's it for this episode. I'm Nat Malkus. 